Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show. We're live here on YouTube a little bit late today. And I'll explain why I'm coming to you here today at 4.30 instead of the normal 2 p.m. Eastern Time Monday. A uh, little bit unexpected. But uh, I'll explain. I had to go up to Baltimore. And uh, the reason I had to go up to Baltimore is that uh, when it comes to Predator D.C., one of the things that we have uh, unfortunately confronted is that on occasion, uh, the predators, the people that we bust on the show, will bring uh, really obviously vexatious, baseless, groundless legal action against us. And not the kind of legal action that you might think. You mean, I know some of you are thinking as you listen or watch now, you're thinking, you mean they sue you? No, they don't sue us. I mean, how could you sue us? If you wanted to sue us, it would have, your complaint would begin with, well, uh, you know, uh, the person would have to say they were just trying to have sex with an underage teen and uh, they walked into the house. And then uh, and when you begin a civil complaint that way, it's it's obviously not likely to be very successful. And whatever reputational interests you thought you had in a lawsuit would be uh, trampled all over by filing such a suit that, that would have that sort of verbiage in it. So it's not a lawsuit. What they do, though, is that sometimes the predators will file They'll go into the courthouse, they'll file, uh, you know, restraining orders against us. We've had that happen. Then we have to show up in court and deal with that. Or they will uh, file um, in Maryland. They have this system where people walk in and they file their own criminal charges. It's a wild system. So then they'll file charges against us for wiretapping or stalking or any number of made up things or vandalism. They'll say that we vandalized their car. We've had that happen. And so essentially what it amounts to, I mean, they never go anywhere. These things never go anywhere. But what it amounts to is that we have to get in the car and drive out to God knows where uh, in the DMV area, oftentimes through traffic, oftentimes very early in the morning um, and go show up. Uh, wait in line behind, you know, 300 other people in the courtroom that they're doing preliminary hearings for, something like that, and then say, uh, you know, basically pick up our piece of paper that signifies that the prosecutor's obviously not picking up the stocking charge, the vandalism charge, the whatever charge. But it ends up basically just amounting to a huge waste of time and, and fuel. Uh, and today was no different. Today I was uh, having to drive up to Baltimore for one of these. And Baltimore is a tough drive, you know, so I had to have a lift take Jack to me, Jack Berkman, that is, co-host co of the show, and then drove all the way up to Baltimore. It ended up being uh, over an hour each way. It's a long trip. I mean, it's not long as the crow flies, but the way that the roads kind of meander through the area as they do here uh, in, in this region, it, it takes quite a while. So been on the road for two plus hours today. Uh, not fun to have to go up there just to pick up a sheet of paperwork. Uh, you know, and Baltimore is no cakewalk, as many of you know. Uh, so having to deal with this kind of nonsense is, is no fun. But uh, I'm here now. I, I don't miss a show. Uh, to add insult to injury to today's trip, of course, it is my 25th birthday. I, I know a lot of you have uh, sent birthday wishes. I thank you a lot for that. December 12 is, in fact, my birthday. That's one thing that the internet usually gets correct uh, and that the smear uh, journalists generally get correct. So 25 years old today. 
But I'm very happy to join you here, even though it's a bit late and we have a lot of news to discuss. Uh, yeah, somebody says Baltimore's in the chat here. Baltimore, stay safe, man. Yeah, it is. Wow, that is a that is a rough place. That is rough, especially around the courthouse. My God, that's rough. A lot of traffic, a lot of driving, uh, and then you know, obviously, a lot of crime in Baltimore. There's been like six television shows made uh, that are set in Baltimore, and every one has been about like crack dealing, murder. Uh, just the worst kind of depraved crime you can imagine. It's the only kind of a show that you can really make set in Baltimore. But that's one of the shows they make. So, and once again, thank you all for the birthday wishes. And we'll we'll jump right in here because, you know, in all of this Twitter files release, there's, there's a lot of this, which is, you know, first of all, I, I don't want to downplay the Twitter files in any way because I think there's a propensity on the right to downplay this and say, yeah, 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 we knew they were shadow banning. And we did. I mean, obviously, we knew they were shadow banning when you go to look up back when I was on Twitter before they banned me in February 26 of 2019. You'd go to look up my account or you'd look up Jacob Wool and you'd see 20 tweets from other people about Jacob Wool, but you wouldn't see any of my tweets. Or you go to accounts then when you look me up, you don't get the pop down suggested. And when you look me up, you go to accounts and you don't see my account. You'll see a bunch of impersonator accounts, but not mine. That was happening on Twitter. Uh, it would happen for periods of time, sometimes for a month, sometimes for longer. Some people were shadow banned for life. I know people that are still on Twitter that have been shadow banned for life, essentially. And we knew that this was taking place. We didn't know exactly to what degree. And we didn't know exactly how it worked. Now we have the proof. Now we have the internal messages. The internal messages don't necessarily show... Uh, a, a dastardly degree of bias, a dastardly, a dastardly degree of political animus. Some of them do, but but not a lot of them. And that makes sense. I mean, you you would do your messages in a sort of a CYA fashion. You would not do the messages to reveal your true intent, obviously. Of course, we learned that, you know, the FBI, CIA and NSA regularly meet with Twitter there and talk about what's going on. That's pretty normal frankly, that the FBI would meet with companies like Twitter and Facebook to talk about a number of topics, including uh, foreign spies that might, that might be moles in their company, topics like that. They, they would serve both a law enforcement function and a counterintelligence function in those meetings. But we did learn that the FBI was asking Twitter to delete certain material. And, um, you know, that's quite remarkable to see. But one of the other things we saw is that Twitter was responsive to those requests for deletion of material about half the time. Now, why was it only half the time? Was it that the other half of the time they just didn't get around to it or what? I, I don't exactly know. So there's a lot to be said about the Twitter files. We don't have time to go into all of it, obviously, on this show, nor would you find that terribly interesting, I'm sure. There's so many takes on this that have already been put out there. But one area that I think I'm in a unique position to discuss because of the work that we've done with Predator DC is the degree to which child exploitation was taking place on Twitter. Now, uh, if any of you have been on Twitter for a very long time, you may know that Twitter is one of these rare mainstream platforms that explicitly allows pornography. Yes, Twitter allows pornography. Now, uh, for the most part, you will be unexposed to the pornography 
uh, other than in your direct messages where they often send you links and say, click here to go to cambot29.com or whatever the case might be, camgirls99.net, click here. So you see it in your direct messages, but otherwise you won't really see it in your feed uh, usually. You may, but, but not usually. But if you go looking for it, um, or if you do follow those sorts of accounts, there is a tremendous repository of pornographic con content. And I mean, a tremendous amount of it, both, you know, bots that are just churning out bot material, you know, perverts that are churning out just because they find it fun. And then actual pornographic content creators who use Twitter as a funnel into their uh, OnlyFans or into their Pornhub account. And that is unique from what they're able to do on other platforms. You see, on other platforms, the way that they have to do it is that they have a link tree in their bio, which is sort of a, a, a separate page in which you can put other links, a landing page, if you will. And they can put up, you know, suggestive content. The girls will do bikinis or, you know, just borderline nude, but not totally nude. And then in their bio will be, you know, the link. Um, TikTok doesn't even allow the link tree things for the most part. They even require the, the girls to, uh, and it's mostly girls who do this. I'm, I'm sure there are men as well, to uh, basically first go to the Instagram where Instagram does allow the link tree. They get to the landing page. You can go to there. But none of these platforms, none of the other, if you will, mainstream content platforms allow outright pornography to promote the page. You know, full nudity, uh, you know, sex on camera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is depraved as you might think. And one of the obvious problems with allowing that kind of content beyond the fact that it's just degenerate, beyond the fact that it's going to be obviously in the process exposed to children and all of that is, you know, a major problem with it is, is that there is such a thing as being in the pornography business. Now, you know, the, the Christian nationalists will talk about how porn should be banned, and many countries do that. I mean, Israel has a, a tremendous crackdown on porn. It's, it's hard to access in Israel unless you have a VPN. Much of the Middle East is that way. Many countries are that way. Not every country just has a massive, you know, laissez-faire attitude towards pornography. That's a different debate. In this country, as we speak, porn is, in fact, legal, uh, presuming that it is depicting consenting adults, then it is legal. It used to be legal uh, even in the cases where, you know, it was wrongfully obtained. It, it, it's, it's interesting to think back to before you had these revenge porn laws. And remember, you'd have these situations where like the various gossip blogs that have just come on the internet would, would put out celebrity sex tapes. Do you recall all of this back, you know, 2000, circa 2000, I remember it as recently as like 2009, 10, 11. The whole Kogan Gawker lawsuit really put that out of business. And these weren't even out and out porn sites. They weren't even pornography sites. They were gossip blogs and they would, you know, put out sex tapes. And I think probably ha at least half the time, probably even more than that, the celebrities themselves were the ones leaking the sex tapes. It was not actually stolen by their a housekeeper or, you know, stolen by a burglar, all these stories. I mean, most of the time it would be like washed up celebrities that are looking to get their name back in the press. And they themselves uh, were leaking the sex tapes. 
And then it was like, oh, the housekeeper stole it. It, it got stolen by a burglar. Or, uh, it was hacked or what, what have you. That was before revenge porn laws came into place, where basically it said, yeah, 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 your girlfriend sent you that video. And under common practice in law, when a video is sent to you or photo sent to you, it's now yours. So you can do with it what you want, including post it. That would that was the old way of thinking in terms of the law. Revenge porn laws came around. They changed all this. I'm just thinking back to like when that was the case. I mean, in fact, I was looking up this band the other day called Creed, which is kind of a pseudo Christian rock band, really excellent band from the early 2000s broke up. But uh, the singer of that band had a celebrity sex tape that was aired on a gossip website of him with like groupies or something. This was common. But the point is, in the post-revenge porn law world, there's not a lot of borderline in terms of, you know, what business you're in. Either you're in the porn business or you are not. And the reason why you have to lay down that line is because in order to stay alive in the porn business today, because there's been this crackdown of, oh, you know, Pornhub had a video on their site that had millions of views and it was a minor and it was flagged a hundred times. They didn't delete it, which of course is sickening, disgusting, etc. But these websites, those who are in the pornography business, for the most part, as I understand it, have learned their lesson about just letting anybody post anything. Although I think there are some websites that do still allow this. That's just not worth the liability risk for them. It's not worth being indicted. It's not worth, you know, having a situation like Backpage where they're kind of indicted for having their servers. They might claim Section 230 immunity, but the DOJ might think differently of that and just let them tell it to the judge. That's the concern. And so basically today, if you decide to be in the porn business, what you have to do is have a policy that, okay, anybody who's on any video has to do ID verification. And generally, it's it's farmed out to a third-party company that does this. The person has to send a picture of their ID, both sides scanned. They have to hold it up both sides, either direction. Sometimes they have to do a video holding it to you know prove their consenting or, or what have you. The third-party thing uses facial recognition, blah, 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 to verify it, and it's verified. You know, yeah, somebody mentions here in the chat, Kim Kardashian. Um, yeah. So a lot of these sites were, were, were you know, in the kind of borderline. They, they, they'd air porn here and there if it was a celebrity. It was kind of strange. So Kim Kardashian really made her name with a sex tape with a rapper, and that was how she came onto the scene. That's how she, you know, became a known entity is because she was in a sex tape with a rapper. Ray J, in fact, who's now friends with Kanye West, and that's a whole other bizarre thing, but whatever. Now, um, that is if you're in the porn business. And if you're not in the porn business and you're not going to be in that business of doing the ID verification and all of that, basically you have to just say zero porn allowed. And then you, what you have to do is have an algorithm that just, you know, is able to sort out nudity, recognize the image and just ban, 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 ban. And it's, it's so aggressive, these algorithms that oftentimes they will ban things that are not nudity. Okay. And that is essentially what you have to do. Because, you see, when you're Twitter and you allow pornography, how does Twitter know if a video posted of porn is of an 18-year-old who looks young or a 14-year-old who looks old or a 14-year-old who doesn't look old? How can they know? So if you're in the position of being a mainstream social media network, I cannot see how it would be uh, tenable as a business 
to allow pornography. How could that be tenable? Because you are not, you are not, uh, you know, able to verify what it is that it is in fact being showed. You don't have any real upside in showing it because your advertisers don't want to advertise next to it, certainly. So what exactly is the upside? What What's the point? You think about that. What's the point? What is the point in, in Twitter allowing porn? What does that achieve? I mean, there can be a, a, a an outside argument that, well, you know, the people po- posting it can be counted as active users, and then they might go and look at a news thing and see an ad. And so that's good because it's good for the ad business. Yeah, I guess. And here's the long story short when it comes to Twitter. Ready for the to sum this up as far as what the problem really was at Twitter? Here's the deal. If you clicked on a certain hashtag on Twitter, and I'm not going to say what these hashtags are. Some of you may know. Uh, I ask you, do not post these things in the chat here or post them anywhere. But if you were to click on, say, the wrong hashtag on Twitter, or we're looking for a certain hashtag on Twitter, or certain code words, oh, and yes, by the way, John Podesta's emails, pizza is one of those well-known code words among online, you know, child molesters, child pornographers, child traffickers. Yes, pizza is, is one of the words. Just so everyone knows, it, it, it's not all a conspiracy theory that, you know, pizza is one of the words, just so you know. I'm not making any accusations here. Another thing that happens to be true, however, is that John Podesta's niece was one of the senior people in charge of content moderation at Twitter. They just resigned. Is it a coincidence? Let's just say it is, because if we say it's not, then we're going to go down a whole rabbit hole there and we won't be able to move forward. Let's say it is a coincidence because it being a coincidence doesn't make what that person did, John Podesta's niece, any less evil at Twitter. If you were to click on the wrong hashtag at Twitter, you would be inundated with videos of child pornography. Okay, that's the punchline here. Twitter hosted millions of terabytes of child pornography. Now, remember something. Video is expensive to host. Even photos are kind of expensive to host. They were hosting tens of thousands, perhaps millions, but I think it's safe to say tens of thousands of terabytes. Uh, They were serving up tens of millions of views per day. Twitter was of child pornography. Tens of millions of views. Much of this child pornography then had teaser links, like the same way that the OnlyFans girls do on TikTok, except it was click here to go buy child exploitation material. You can believe that. So Twitter was the largest, and I don't know to what degree it's changed. Hopefully it's changed. I've read that it has changed. I'm not going to go looking and find out. But Twitter was the largest child pornography site on the planet. Yes, Twitter was the largest child pornography website on the planet. In fact, by any reasonable estimate that I have been able to find on this topic, Twitter on a daily basis was serving up more child pornography than the, and it's hard to measure some of this, but they were serving up more child pornography than was served up on the entirety of the dark web as represented by the Tor system. I just want to. I just want you to 
understand this. Twitter was serving up more child pornography than the entirety of the dark web on a daily basis. Tens of millions of views. And they weren't profiting from it. There's, there's absolutely no profit motive for Twitter to do this because they don't even serve up ads next to bikini photos. Although some of Twitter's ads feature some pretty scantily clad women, I will say, to get people to stop scrolling as they scroll past the ad for these gambling sites and the like. But they were serving up, and so under certain hashtags on Twitter, there were videos of children being raped and murdered. That's a popular one, by the way. And I, I don't even want to get into all of this. It's so sick that you, I'll just turn your stomachs and I'll take away my own appetite on my birthday here. But in, in, a, in a lot of this, they, they kill the child. You know, that's part of the, that's part of the draw, apparently, for these sickos. Um, if you want to understand that world and just how dark that world is, I will warn you. You may not want to know, but 60 Minutes Australia, um, you look up 60 Minutes Australia, Peter Scully. This is an extraordinarily graphic uh, 60 Minutes report. I mean, graphic, but you won't see, you know, anything you don't, first of all, anything that's illegal to see, but you will get a sense for just how sick that whole world is. Okay. You will get a sick thing. Uh, thank you guys for the birthday wishes here, tuning in here in the chat. Thank you. So if you watch the 60 Minutes documentary or 60 Minutes, um, I guess, segment, 60 Minutes Australia, that is, on Peter Scully, who is an Australian citizen, major child pornographer in the Philippines, you'll get a sense. But Twitter was serving up tens of millions of views of this. While their content moderation team, by the way, is shadow banning conservatives, which, okay, shadow banning. But, but even more importantly, totally banning, like me, depriving of the, the public square, depriving of the right to reply. And at least as of the last time I checked, I, I, am, I am still banned. Um, in fact, I'm going to just, why don't I just check here while I'm on the show? It appears I'm still banned. Uh, uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, still, still suspended on Twitter um, as, of, as of right now. Uh, but... <laughs> point is that, you know, it, it seems to be moving in the right direction on censorship. Loomer's back, Stone's back. The Krasenstein twins who were running an enormous bot network on Twitter were unbanned. So we'll see what happens. You know, knock on wood here. Keep my fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. But, but while these people were spending so much time with the trust and safety team, trust and safety, now, what is less trustworthy and less safe than child pornography? And they were serving up tens of millions of views a day to it. And and you again, I want to stress, it is not, it is not cheap to serve up video views. You know, YouTube is an amazing thing. The fact I can do this stream here to all of you, and and I don't get charged to do it. And in fact, I don't get paid because my channel is demonetized. Of course, you can support the show. You can go to Cash App Real Jacob Wool, or you can go to jacobwool.org slash podcast, but YouTube monetization is cut off to us. But in any event, um, the fact I can do it for free is amazing because it, it, it takes up a lot of bandwidth. I mean, it takes me some to send it to YouTube, but then it takes them a lot to send it out. 
And imagine if there were many more views, but tens of millions of views are expensive to serve up. It's not as though you wouldn't notice that you were serving up so many views. So Twitter was the world's largest child porn site. It was operating in the U.S. You think about the, the, the lack of action by Republicans. I mean, people like Jim Jordan, by the way, who you know, we're, we're such unbelievable posers on the issue of tech censorship. Jim Jordan saying, we got to do something about this. Elect me, reelect me. We have to get after this tech censorship. He would showboat before Congress. He would go on to Sean Hannity's show and talk about tech censorship. And then what Jim Jordan would do is he never did any actual investigations. Because if Jim Jordan conducted any legitimate investigations whatsoever on the House Oversight Committee of Twitter, he would have turned up the fact that Twitter was operating the world's largest child porn website. You know, it's like all this talk about the dark web and, oh, we busted a dark web website here. We busted a dark website, website, you know, over there. Great. Fantastic. Do that. We all want those to be shut down. Meanwhile, right under the nose, it's like, oh, you know, Apple might remove Twitter from the app store because uh, they might allow Trump to tweet. The, the fact Twitter was the world's largest child porn site didn't give Apple any pause. It didn't turn up any smoke with Jim Jordan's investigation that wasn't an investigation. And then while Jim Jordan was such a poser, not conducting any legitimate investigation, but yet using the fake investigation to fundraise from goobers out there who are fooled by this kind of nonsense, what was going on? What, what was going on with Jim Jordan? Well, what Jim Jordan was doing is quietly killing bills that would have put any kind of hamper on Twitter's anti-competitive business practices or any big tech anti-competitive business practices. Because, of course, remember, it's not just Twitter who censors us. I'm also banned by Facebook. I'm banned by Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Google conducts a great deal of censorship. You know, the reason that we can't really grow this show on YouTube is because YouTube shadow bans this show. I mean, to an extreme degree, even to the degree that when people click the bell to get live notifications and they're subscribed to the channel, they rarely see my videos show up on their homepage. They rarely see the, the, the notification uh, come through. So we're shadow banned by YouTube. That's why we don't get the algorithmic boosting of the show where we can grow it the way you can, say, if you're Tim Pool, who's on the, you know, the, the, the good list as far as being what the, the left views as controlled or controllable opposition. But Google is, doesn't operate the world's largest child porn site. Twitter does. And Twitter was doing this for years. Meanwhile, they're banning me. And, and what I want to bring you here is, is maybe some of the explanation of how that was the case. How did that happen? Well, so we know these people were doing nothing about the child pornography problem. We have their own internal emails, chats, etc., where that is very clearly revealed. I mean, it was far worse than... Backpage, anything Backpage ever did. I tweeted here from the Predator DC account, which is allowed. It's new. You can follow at Predator DC show on Twitter. And, and I just asked this woman, this Podesta woman and, and others, you know, what, what do they think should happen to them? This is something I like to ask to the pedophiles that we bust on Predator DC when I interrogate them. And sometimes I get hit for being too polite with them um, and not scream at them and stuff. But the, the thing is here, I'm out to actually interrogate these people. I mean, read a book. You want a book recommendation? Here's a good book. I was just rereading recently on interrogation called Get to the Truth. Get to the Truth is the name of the book. Former CIA officers teach you how to persuade anyone to tell all. 
Get to the Truth is the name of the book. Okay, I've actually done a lot of research on how to conduct a proper interrogation. This book is about one of 10 that I've read on the topic. And, and, and a great deal of studying I've done on, on proper interrogation techniques. The point is, you don't get anywhere with anybody by sh- by screaming them, by screaming at them, or shaming them. At least outside of very particular applications of those kinds of things that are under extreme control at, at very specific moments in an interrogation. That's why I don't scream at them. You, there's other channels where people go meet meet up with sex predators. They do a sting, low budget sting, poor quality, and they start screaming. Half the time, you don't even know what they're saying because it just blows out, overmodulates their mic. Uh, you certainly can't hear what the other guy's saying, but we've actually gotten people to admit the scope of their wrongdoing, which is powerful because, you know, they can deny a lot. They can say, oh, I was set up. I, I didn't know. Uh, they, they say sometimes, oh, I thought the girl was joking that she was in high school. Oh, really? And, and her high school ID, what did you think that was? She just went out and, and, and made a new high school ID with this year on it and joked around when you asked for a picture of it. Come on. But the point is, once they actually admit to what they did and that they knew what they were doing and that they knew it was wrong at the table, that's powerful evidence. Whether prosecutors choose to take it up or not in these left-wing jurisdictions, that's another story. We've successfully gotten a few prosecutions. In fact, two days before Christmas, I have to appear as a witness. I'm subpoenaed two days before Christmas as a witness on the 23rd in the trial of Tom Berner, uh, the elementary school teacher who we busted. Uh, in in uh, our sting, you can see he was completely buck naked. His video is still up. He reports it for privacy violations constantly. It's still up, thankfully. Tom Berner, and they got into his laptop, and I'm not even going to get into what they found there because I don't want to. I just don't want to discredit myself by you know talking about things I shouldn't talk about in that case as far as being a witness. But I'm I'm subpoenaed to be a witness. So some prosecutions are moving forward, thank God. A couple of them out of that season three sting, but it's very hard to get cooperation in those things. I encourage you after this episode is over, go watch that if you, if you want to. Um, but one of the questions I like to ask, I, I got diverted there, but one of the questions I like to ask is what do you think should happen to you? I like to ask these people this question. And it's amazing. You know, I think the majority of them say, well, I think I learned my lesson. I don't think I should go to jail. I think, you know, I should just move on. And I actually, they tell me that they don't think uh, the episode should air either. They should just take this and suffer no, um, you know, reputational injury whatsoever, no exposure whatsoever. And of course we can't do that. We have to put everything out there. The only reason anything ever doesn't get out there is because, you know, you might not see it out there because one or more tech platforms are deleting it because these guys mass flag the videos or, or B, we just haven't had a chance to edit it yet, which has been one of the issues when we're, you know, bogged down going to court all over the damn place. And these things, as I talked about at the beginning of the show. So I have filed an appeal. Yes, I filed an appeal with Twitter. I filed several, in fact, you know. And uh, I know they brought back Richard Spencer. And, you know, so he's called for them to bring me back. Uh, So, you know, we'll see what happens. So anyway, guys, look. This was going on at Twitter. They did nothing about it. Their emails proved that they did nothing about it. Tom Berner was the one who hired the reputation manager firm to put up thousands of videos to outcast mine. That's Tom Berner. And you can go report those videos as spam, by the way, if you want. If you look up Thomas Berner, you see those spam videos. You can report them as spam if if you'd like. I would appreciate that. 
to help our episode here. Okay, so you know, Jack fired back. Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, Elon Musk said it's a crime that they refuse to take action on child exploitation for years. And Jack Dorsey says this is false. And Elon Musk says, no, it is not. When Ella Irwin, who runs Twitter Twist and Safety, joined Twitter earlier this year, almost no one was working on child safety. She raised it with Ned and Parag, but they rejected her staffing request. I made it a top priority immediately. So you see, they rejected it. And again, it's like there's no profit in it for them. Are they just enthusiasts of the content? Are they advocates for it? Could it be the case that these people at Twitter are actually just, you know, plain old nonprofit advocates for child pornographers, for child rapists? That couldn't be true, could it? Well, it appears that very likely that's exactly what they were. So you have this issue of this Yoel Roth, who managed to stay around even longer than he should have at Twitter. But let's look at this tweet from Yoel Roth. This is an old tweet. Uh, this is from November 20th, uh, 2010. Yoel Roth, this guy was very senior at the trust and safety, trust and safety, in other words, censorship arm of Twitter. He is, by the way, if you've ever seen him speak, I never saw him speak until he was at this uh, conference uh, in a kind of a panel interview, panel on stage style interview with Kara Swisher. It wasn't really a panel, but it was that style on a stage live. Kara Swisher, the you know famous lesbian tech writer, tech commentator, and you know this guy is about as flamboyant a homosexual as you've ever seen. I mean, it was almost like a, a caricature of a flamboyant homosexual. It was so over the top, uh, the way he speaks and all of that. Um. I mean, the, the high pitched voice and the, you know, manner, all of that, you know, pixie stuff that the, that some of these people are, you know, kind of uh, stereotypically known for. And I mean, it was over the top. But here's a tweet from Yoel Roth from 2010, uh, November 20th, 2010. And he says, can high school students ever meaningfully consent to sex with their teachers? Wow. So this is a question that Yoel Roth really finds perplexing, apparently. You know, can can high school students ever meaningfully consent to sex with their teachers? And, and by the way, in many states, even if the student is 18, it's not legal for the teacher to have sex with them. It's specifically illegal. It's less illegal than if they're under 18. If they're under 18, even in states where um, the age of consent might be lower than 18 under some circumstances. There's different states where they have what are, what are called Romeo and Juliet laws. So if you have a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old, or a 19-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 17-year-old, something like that. Like I was in high school, I was 17 and I had an 18-year-old girlfriend. Okay. Not that that would ever be charged, but many states have what are called Romeo and Juliet laws. Some states actually have the age of consent lower. Some states allow, you know, underage marriage, which is just weird, you know, where you have 60-year-olds marrying 14-year-olds in the United States. Yes, you do. And it's bizarre and sick. And I don't know how that's legal. I mean, that sounds like something right out of Saudi Arabia, except probably they don't even allow it. But in any event, even in those states where it's lower, if they're the teacher, it doesn't count. Or if you're the coach, it doesn't count. It, it is specifically prohibited because they're in a you know, position where there's just a, a huge opportunity for exploitation where they say, hey, I'll give you an A if you have sex with me, or I'll, I'll put you on the varsity team if you do this. And so it's not allowed. 
and uh, he looks and sounds young. Yoel Roth, I, you know, I got to tell you, I, his age, how old is he? Um, I don't think he's too young, but um, I'll, I'll tell you if I can, if I can find here, how old is he? He's four. Uh, well, I see estimates between 35 and 41. Okay. I see, I see ages between 35 and 41 for UL Roth's age. So let's say 35 on the young side. Okay. And so could this have just been one tweet, you know, that he didn't exactly mean it was out of context. We don't really know what this link went to because it's expired. The link is a bitly, you know, shrunken link and it's expired. So maybe this was just one tweet, except no, no, it's not. In fact, Yoel Roth wrote an entire PhD thesis, 250 pages long PhD thesis on uh, basically the, the PhD thesis. It's, it's a rambling thing about Grindr, the gay dating app. But the conclusion of the whole discussion basically comes down to Yoel Roth saying that it's critical for LGBT youth to have access to adults who want to have sex with them on Grindr. Yes. The guy wrote a 250 page long PhD thesis on why children need access to Grindr. Yes. Yoel Roth, the same guy at Twitter. Now, of course, when you have written something like that and it comes to light and you are a left wing darling, what happens? Well, what happens is, you know, they say the Internet's forever and I say that's so not true. I mean, if you deleted all your Internet profiles as an average anonymous person, they would be effectively gone within a year. It's too expensive to host stuff. It doesn't stick around. You read about that more in my 19 rules article. You look up Jacob Bull 19 rules Substack. You'll find it. But UPenn swiftly removed this uh, from their database. I had already gotten a copy. I tweeted out a link to uh, the full paper if you care, but I, uh, the relevant kind of conclusion page about him making sure that children have access to Grinder to be molested by adults. That's actually what he wrote a PhD thesis on. And this is the guy who just couldn't manage to get child porn off of Twitter. Tens of millions of views of it per day on Twitter. Tens of millions per day. Didn't take care of it. Didn't do anything about it. Refused to do anything about it. It's all clear in the emails, in the chats, in the evidence, in the memos. Along with Podesta's niece, who we was working on that with. Wouldn't remove it. Refused to. And then you see that, you know, basically by all appearances, by based on his own words... What he looks like, what he looks like is a sickening gay pedophile. That's what it appears based on his own words, based on what he's advocated for, based on his tweets. And he, we know that he refused to do anything about the massive amount of child porn on Twitter. And Elon Musk pointed that out in a tweet. He pointed out, hey, it seemed like you were you wrote a PhD thesis. And Elon Musk was very nice. Seems like Yoel Roth wrote a thesis advocating for children to have access to adult services. That's what he called it. Not He didn't use the term grinder. He didn't get real specific. He could have. He didn't. And then there's these, these, these people that fire back advocating for Roth, like this person here, this Dan Primack saying, no matter if you think at Yoel Roth or at, you know, Yo Yoel did an amazing or terrible job at Twitter or have no opinion at all. What Elon Musk did to him yesterday was both dangerous and disgusting. It's the sort of thing that would cause most boards to call a special meeting, but Twitter doesn't have one. 
And it's like, there's this whole contingent of people that live in this world where, where, where any criticism of them at all is dangerous. It's just dangerous. You know, they, they can't point to any instances of anybody experiencing a dangerous event, anybody experiencing death, injury, threats of any of that. Really, I mean, they, sometimes they have vague examples about, oh, you know, we have to suppress this because there's been, uh, they said, bomb threats called into a uh, transgender children clinic. And then, oops, it turns out it was one of the damn doctors at the clinic calling in the threats to make herself look like a hero in one instance that they had referenced. Almost always turns out to be the case. But on the whole, they say essentially that any criticism of them and we're not talking about anonymous people here. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about you know wives, families. Uh, we're talking about public figures, major executives that are subject to a different level of scrutiny, a different level of criticism, a different level of exposure than non-public figures under the law, by the way, not just under common understanding, but under the law. But you can't criticize them. That's dangerous, they say. And it doesn't just extend to UL Roth. I mean, it extends to Fauci. Uh, Musk tweeted over the weekend, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci, a very, you know, kind of boomer style thing, very mild. And they were just bent out of shape about the fact he had insulted the concept of pronouns, but even insult, you know, kind of bent out of shape that he may have, God forbid, criticized Fauci. They say that is dangerous. Again, calling for him to be removed. So it's just out of control. You know, they were saying it's dangerous to Fauci. How dare you criticize him? It's dangerous. It's dangerous to UL Roth. That's what they say. It's so beyond the pale. It's so sickening. Basically, it's like, and it's just, it's so strange, you know, how this works. And, and I didn't even tell you a story from the courthouse here earlier, what actually happened in Baltimore. I was, I was at the courthouse in Baltimore and I recognized the guy who's walking up to me as being the lawyer for Jamie Menina. Jamie Menina is the FBI special agent and former Hillary Rodham Clinton senior staffer who walked into our sting house on Predator DC, who we busted on Predator DC. Menina served us with prior legal letters impersonating a different law firm. They disavowed him, said, we have nothing to do with this. And he has this lawyer who works for him. The lawyer's a short, maybe five foot, oh, five foot six, maybe Jewish guy. He looks just like one of my friends, in fact. I and mean, he looks very similar, but shorter and smaller. And the guy walks up to us and he's wearing all black, black suit, black tie, you know, white shirt, but black suit, black, side, black tie, um, black a vest. It was a three-piece suit, all black, like an undertaker. And he's wearing black leather gloves, walks up to shake our hands with the gloves on, you know, inside, indoors. It's kind of strange. And he's got this big trench coat on. And, you know, I didn't really think much of the trench coat, big leather trench coat. And he's you know, sort of trying to make small talk with us, but he's a potential, you know, counsel for a, maybe a down-the-road Litigant against us, some, certainly somebody who's filed false complaints about us. Uh, Menina filed a restraining order against us. It was thrown out, okay, but we had to go waste time dealing with it. And this lawyer, you know, so imagine this. He's got this big trench coat on. And then he tells us, are you ready for this? This is going to floor you. Uh, there's a reason I'm telling you this story. 
he brings up his trench coat and we say, oh yeah, you know, it looks nice. It's a stylish. And he says, you know, it's actually, believe it or not, it's a costume. So, oh really? I got it as a costume. It's, um, it's actually a Nazi costume. Um, and you know, I just, it's the only, I'd never wear a coat, but this coat I really like. It's a, it's a, it's actually a Nazi costume, uh, leather jacket. And then I look at him like, oh yeah, that's just like the, uh, the old, uh, what was it? Hugo Boss, you know, field marshal, big, you know, the big leather trench coats that they, that the Nazis would wear. He's like, I'm Jewish by the way, but you know, I just, and it was just, he told us like three or four times that it was a Nazi jacket from a Nazi costume that he has. So folks, I'm just telling you, man, when you deal in this world of these people that come against us and then they all turn out to be like such bizarre people, you know, like this UL Roth, like some of the people we busted on Predator DC, you know, and then like this lawyer for one of them, mysterious lawyer who walks up to us and he's dressed up as, you know, at least in part a Nazi, tells us about his Nazi costume, Jewish guy. And I don't know if it was like a ploy to get us to say that, you know, to get us to say that we might also be a fan of Nazi dress. I don't know what the whole thing was, but it's just beyond bizarre that I've got lawyers for these guys. Guys busted on Predator DC. They're 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 filing fake restraining orders to get thrown out. That I've got to go drive hours to deal with, and then they're dressed up as, you know, the the Reichs Marshal for God's sakes. I said, okay, we'll call you the Field Marshal, and he said, I like that. It's just man, it was weird. Oh, show you a picture, but I, you know, I'm not supposed to take pictures in a court courtroom, courthouse, uh, for the most part, even in the courthouse period. Oh, it's bizarre. Okay. Quick couple of stories here before we close out the show. Um, God almighty, bizarro, bizarro land folks, twilight zone stuff. Um, is Jamie from season one? No, Jamie's from season two. And you can look up Jamie Menina and see the, you know, raw footage. It's been deleted across a lot of the internet by the tech companies. Again, he's former FBI. His restraining order against us has been refused. Now he's accused me of wiretapping in court. That charge has now been thrown out. And then on Wednesday, we have to go in because he alleges that we have somehow committed electronic harassment. So on Wednesday, I get to drive down to Prince George's County on that one. Um... It's just unbelievable, guys. I mean, anyway, that's Jamie Menina, former FBI agent. FBI got rid of him, apparently, following the sting is what, at least what he says in his complaint that's written in the tone of like Ted Kaczynski, handwritten in like all caps or something. It's just so bizarre. Okay, moving on here. I got to keep moving here. Got to get this show done. Um, you know, this story out of the Washington Post, I don't talk about sports much. I'm not going to talk about this story much either, but it was just amazing. I had to show it to you. It says, this Washington Post says, why doesn't Argentina have more black players in the World Cup? It's like, maybe because they're a white country. I don't know. Argentina is a pretty white European country. They got a lot of Germans and, you know, they have some Span some white Spaniards, I think, also. And they speak Spanish. And so they're technically Hispanic, but it's and it's a backwards country. Don't get me wrong. Argentina is a backwards country. They have debt cycles, a blowout. The country's constantly going broke, hyperinflation. Like, And then the, the, the people of that country just vote for socialist hyperinflationary policies again. They just do it again. It's a, just a backwards, screwed up country. But nonetheless, it's like as if there's one area, you know, 
if there was one area that you think the left might be immune from calling for more diversity in, you would think it might be sports. Because by the way, sports generally are not only, I mean, they're not only diverse, but they're in fact, in some, in many instances, not diverse in the sense that they're overwhelmingly in the case of at least basketball and football, black and not white. Uh, in the case of, I mean, more and more basketball teams like NBA college teams, you don't see a white player on the court, much less on the team generally now. Most people say that's up to meritocracy. Maybe it is. Maybe it's cultural. Who knows? I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of it very quickly, nor do I really care about sports at all. I, I don't follow it at all. Zero percent. There's just no mental ram left for that in my case. Uh, and I think sports, you know, kind of pacify the public. The sooner we get rid of sports, probably the better for the country. Um, but I don't I'm not holding my breath on that. But no, they say even in sports. So they say more diversity needed in hockey. Uh, you know, men need to be in women's sports in the form of transgenderism. Um, so it's just, it's remarkable. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought this might've been fake, but it's real. Uh, we got a story out of Politico this week. This is pretty remarkable. This is from Politico. It says, Trump who? GOP senators rave over a potential Tim Scott presidential run. Tim Scott is, uh, you know, one of the worst establishment Republicans around. Um, he was appointed to the Senate in South Carolina, essentially. Uh, that was done basically between, you know, the governor there and McConnell, essentially made him a senator, crowned him a senator, Tim Scott, uh, out of nowhere because they wanted a diversity play, basically. Tim Scott's policies are like, you know, to the left of Marco Rubio. His votes are to the left of Marco Rubio. He wanted chokeholds banned. He basically, you know, advocated for the First Step Act. He's barely a Republican at all in most respects, except for, you know, holding the party line on some major corporatist agendas like, you know, lowering, uh, like preserving the carried interest loophole, for example. You know, he, he's big on that because McConnell, whose biggest backer is uh, Blackstone and BlackRock, tell him to do that. And so he doesn't. Carried interest loopholes, big for hedge fund managers, private equity managers and the like. So, um, but it's like, who says exactly that he should be president? I mean, he's totally politically untested. He's not popular. And I have not been able to find a straw poll where, you know, Tim Scott pulls above about 2%. And I think generally he pulls at 0% and sometimes 1% which is maybe somebody checking the wrong box, but they're pushing this. Uh, his chief of staff, I believe, some senior staffers of his have gone over to basically the what is sort of a nascent um, or, or sort of uh, the beginnings of a presidential campaign that is now in the form of kind of a exploratory committee slash PAC. Oh, bizarre. I mean, you know, a lot of times people don't even think they're going to win. They do it for exposure. They say, I can make some money on a book. I can raise my profile. I don't know. I don't know, man. It's, 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 it's strange. It's a vanity project for a lot of these people, but, um, you know, I don't think Kanye West has got much of a chance as president, but I, I think he's got a better chance than Tim Scott. I'll tell you that. So strange. Um, I saw this tweet out here. I just wanted to reflect on this a little bit. Um, this died suddenly film, um, you know, I, I'm the biggest supporter of people on the right putting out films, putting out projects. We need more of it. We need it to be funded. It needs to be, you know, done. 
whether it's done well or not, I just like to see people putting out projects. But this died suddenly film, you know, makes a very specific contention that the COVID vaccines were a plot to depopulate the earth. Of course, that hasn't happened. Um, you know, no depopulation trends have taken hold. Some measures on some life insurance type statistics say there's been excess deaths. Yes, maybe that's ascribable, maybe it's not. But whether or not there's excess deaths, we are not on track because of the vaccines to depopulate the earth, folks. Okay, can we can we be clear about this? If you thought you were going to begin a, a death spiral trend to the extent it didn't already exist, and especially in places like China and Japan, as far as a population bomb and beginning to take hold in the United States, like the vaccine didn't get us there. It's not started us down that path. Okay, just just so everyone's on the same page. But one of the ways in which it did this is it made this claim from these couple of moreticians, uh, you know, funeral home um, uh, embalmers. Uh, uh, I don't. They were morticians. I don't even think they were medical examiners. Really, maybe there were some medical examiners. I don't know. That's a very unregulated space, by the way. Some parts of the country they're elected. Some parts of the country, you know, I mean, there's no qualifications. Many of them aren't even doctors that become, you know, county medical examiners. So the quality of medical examinations varies widely across the country. Even within the same county, you get much different conclusions on the same examination as we saw in the George Floyd trial. But they made this claim that there's these, you know, massive clots that are, exist that were never there before, and it must be due to the vaccine. Um. I contacted people, I did my own original research, and there's just no truth to that, as far as I've been able to find out. And then other points in the film, you know, there's there's points in which they say, look at this woman who just passed out and died, must, must have been the vax. And then turns out um, she didn't even die, she tripped and fell. Just somebody who tripped, or just somebody who fainted because, you know, they didn't eat, or they took too many of one medication, not enough of the other, or what have you. Um, so guys, I just think you got to be, that's a rabbit hole. You can go down you can spend, look, here, here's the thing. You can look back at the next three years of your life, three years from now, and you can find that you spent an appreciable amount of time in that three years. It, it, it adds up. It'll add up to months. You, you will have spent on, you know, watching videos about the vaccine when, in so many cases, the people that consume these videos didn't get the vaccine anyway. So, so it's not even prescient to whether they are going to die in you know the next two years or something because of this. Um, it's wild. And, and by the way, can I just say one thing? I saw this story about this girl who was denied an organ transplant because she wasn't vaccinated or something. Obviously, that's horrible on the part of the hospital. Do I even need to say this? Obviously, that's disgusting, sickening, awful. But you know who is also at fault for that? Are those girls' parents. I find it, you know, I don't have to say that it's horrible for the hospital to do that. You guys should know that I believe that. But I will also say, these parents who decide to use their child who needs an organ transplant in order to survive as a cudgel, as as a sort of a, a, a vessel for what they view as a anti-vax, you know, anti-vax tyranny PR plug to me is just the most ghoulish, sickening thing I can imagine. Because you know how it works. You guys know how it works. They didn't ask for proof. 
that the girl was vaccinated? None. They didn't ask for that. They didn't ask for that at all. They could have just checked the box and said, yeah, she's vaccinated. You know, and, and maybe they, they didn't know that it was dispositive, right? Well, then, you know, you, what you might have to do is say, well, we got her vaxxed over the weekend. She's all good now. She's up on her shots. Bring her back or, or take her to quietly to another hospital and tell them, oh, by the way, I, I understand some policy, but she's vaxxed. So that your kid can get the organ transplant. Maybe you wait until after the transplant, then you expose it and say, we had to lie to the hospital just to get our girl the transplant she needs. These parents that would potentially kill their children. I don't know if any children have died or not just children, but I, children in this case, because the children don't have control here. I mean, to, to get a spot on Fox and Friends or to get likes on Facebook. Oh my God. You know, because with an organ transplant, usually like time counts as far as you get it or you die. And, and even when it's not, it's like, that's one more day that girl's got to be plugged into a dialysis machine or go stay at, live in a hospital or something. And the parents are interested in, in using the kid for some goddamn PR spot about that. Ho- you could make that point about that hospital's policy with or without your child being refused a transplant. You can make that point either way. Make it afterwards. Say we had to lie. But boy, oh boy, is it beyond sick that basically people are potentially sacrificing their children. Maybe even if they're not sacrificing the children, they're definitely sacrificing the child's privacy. I don't like that idea. Your children should not be foisted onto the internet, foisted into the news headlines, you know, for really any reason, you should, you should keep them out of it. Okay. For a whole host of reasons. Okay. That we don't even have time to get into today, man. It's sick. I saw that with those parents and I, I just thought, man, that is so, so sick. Anyway, here, I saw this tweet out here. Um, it says here, many UC Berkeley upper division computer science students can't even write loops or multiply matrices. Is this true? It's from some referencing some report here. I just I know I've got some IT folks, some some software engineers out there. Um, you know, let me know what you think of this. Um, could this possibly be true? UC Berkeley traditionally has put out some great software engineers, as I understand it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Is this affirmative action in place or just bad education? What's what's happening? Or are the really good comp sci guys just going straight into the workforce without the degree? I don't know. I'm just putting this out there because I want to learn more about what the truth is. All right, folks, to close out the show here today, as we get into winter, it's been a much more mild winter here in D.C. I don't know if that extends into Europe and whether that will have implications for the Ukraine situation. Maybe some of you who know weather better than I do. We have a meteorologist maybe in the audience or somebody can look into this. Um. It says during the pandemic, every major student was plugged into Stack Overflow and Google. Yeah, so they were not really learning the material, in other words, because the exams were all virtual. That makes sense. So they can't really do anything on their own. That could make sense. Yeah. Anyway, you can send in notes for the show. I got to skip the note. I have a couple notes here. I got to wait till the next episode. We're just running long here and I got to roll here. So, uh, but you can go to jacobwold.org slash contact, send in your notes. Again, you can donate jacobwold.org 
slash podcast. You can donate there or Cash App, uh, Cash App, Real Jacob Wool, Real Jacob Wool on Cash App. I appreciate it here uh, as, as we do the broadcast. But I want to play us out with this clip here. This is something as we get into winter, this Leonard Nimoy uh, after the winter of 1977 talking about how uh, at the time scientists were thinking we might plunge into an ice age. Uh, this clip here to play us out. At least eight times in the past million years, it has advanced and retreated with clockwork regularity. If we are unprepared for the next advance, the result could be hunger and death on a scale unprecedented in all of history. What scientists are telling us now is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. In 1977, the worst winter in a century struck the United States. Arctic cold gripped the Midwest for weeks on end. Great blizzards paralyzed cities of the Northeast. One desperate night in Buffalo, eight people froze to death in marooned cars. Pat Bushnell was on the road that night. Traffic just absolutely stopped. I was afraid of being stuck in the car all night long with the uh, cold and the wind running out of gas. And then what? I think that if we had to go through a real bad winter, just like we just went through, I think we'd have to think about moving someplace else. Move where? The brutal Buffalo winter might become common all over the United States. Climate experts believe the next ice age is on its way. According to recent evidence, it could come sooner than anyone had expected. At weather stations in the far north, temperatures have been dropping for 30 years. Sea coasts long free of summer ice are now blocked year-round. According to some climatologists, within a lifetime, we might be living in the next ice age. Of the nine planets in our solar system, only Earth has conditions favorable to human life. Well, that was Leonard Nimoy. You look up Leonard Nimoy Ice Age. That was a big thing in the 70s. They had a couple of really brutal winters at that time. My dad's told me about him. He lived in the Northeast at the time, in fact, in the D.C. area. But uh, that shows you the the in vogue prediction changes. But the fact that doomsday cults exist, uh, that never does seem to change. They've been around forever. And the latest one is called global warming. Uh, it is, in fact, a, a doomsday cult. Well, that's part of a longer thing about that, like I said, you can watch it. Thanks for joining me today, folks. Uh, support the show if you can. Uh, you, again, cash app Real Jacob Wool or jacobwool.org slash podcast. Uh, and even more importantly, share the link, share the show with your friends. Let's bring in new viewers here. It's not easy when we're shadow banned and banned off of most of social media, but we're going to do our best. Be back here Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time Live, podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next episode.